This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, both past and present. I'm Alexi Toliopoulos, and you're listening to Sunburnt Screens, an odyssey through the landscape of Australian cinema. Sunburnt Screens is a collaboration between me and the Cinemates over at Umbrella Entertainment. Almost all the movies that we're talking about on today's episode are available for you to stream right now for free on broly.com.au, their new dedicated streaming service celebrating Australian cinema, independent cinema, and cult films. And basically every film we're talking about ticks all of those boxes. So check them out. On this episode, we'll be exploring the shocks and schlocks of one of Australia's most fervently loved and intimidatingly vast filmmaking periods, Ozploitation Cinema. Rolling alongside the more critically prestigious Australian new wave film renaissance of the 1970s, Ozploitation Cinema kicked things up a notch with the introduction of the R rating resulting in a grubby swath of low-budget exploitation films. Everything from freaky horror flicks to horny sexploitation comedies and even some absolutely ripper stunt-infested action films. Things went full-throttle bonkers in the 80s with 10BA, a tax break that allowed investors to claim a whopping 150% tax concession. So as you can imagine, every bloke with a big sack of bucks wanted to invest in Aussie film big time. Countless Aussie genre grubsters took over our screens, and the depth of it is covered in Mark Hartley's glorious celebration of Ausploitation, the documentary Not Quite Hollywood, which you can watch right now for free on Broly. But I recommend you come equipped with a pen and a pad because you'll be adding films to your watch list the whole time. With seemingly an infinite amount of movies saturating the space, the prospect of waiting in can be pretty overwhelming. So here I'm offering you an introduction to Ausploitation, an introduction to the brilliant work of one filmmaker, a hero of mine, Brian Trenchard-Smith. Brian is a dedicated journeyman of filmmaking with a wacky sense of humour that feels decades ahead of its time. He's helmed undisputed classics of schlock and awe, like his collaboration with his legendary Australian stunt icon, Grant Page, a list that includes The Man from Hong Kong, in my opinion, the greatest action film ever filmed in Australia, and Danger Freaks, a stunt compilation starring Grant Page that knocks jackass into the dust. He's even made classic kid adventure films like BMX Bandit starring Nicole Kidman and Frog Dreaming starring Henry Thomas from E.T. Visions of Aussie dystopias with the proto-Hunger Games classic Turkey Shoot and one of my favourite films of all time, Dead End Drive-In, about a drive-in cinema in a wasteland that becomes a penitentiary for the undesirable youth of Australian society. A true old-school progressive leftist, Brian Trenchard-Smith's works simmer with a social commentary that still reverberates today. There's one film of his I've never got the chance to talk to him about before that just burns through my brain with curiosity. It's a government PSA called Hospitals Don't Burn Down, made to combat a string of fires 
ignited by old blokes smoking durries under the blankets in their hospital beds. But in Brian's hands, it's less a government PSA and more a stunt-riddled disaster film. So I couldn't help myself but start there. I absolutely love your book, The Adventures in the B-Movie Trade. And you talk about the things that go right, the things that go wrong. One of your proudest achievements that you mentioned in the book is a short film that is a great obsession of mine. It's called Hospitals Don't Burn Down, which is, I guess, a PSA safety film that Genesis begins as a means to combat a cycle of fires started in hospitals because patients are smoking cigarettes in their beds. I see. The main stairway's impassable and the fire stairs cut, but they expect they can get it under control. We've got to get everyone out that way. Everyone? We've got about a minute and a half more oxygen. We'll have to get them all onto manual. We can't do it in a time. No, we can't. Who do we save? Take that patient first. Can you tell me about your experience making this film? How does it even start? And why does it still retain like a place of pride for you, this film? Well, yes, place of pride, because I think it's one of the few films that I have made in which I feel an act of goodness occurred as a result. Uh, how many filmmakers can say that uh, with reasonable certainty? So uh, back in 77, the Veteran Affairs Department were kind of concerned about the number of fires starting in their hospitals from discarded cigarette butts or people falling asleep uh, while smoking in bed and starting to spontaneously incandesce. And uh, so they thought, well, our hospital staff need to be trained in various things, better housekeeping, better patient monitoring, better ways to organize a hospital to minimize fire danger. And they commissioned Film Australia to basically spend just under $90,000 to make a 20-something minute film on 16 millimeter ectochrome that would be multiple printed and or transferred to three-quarter inch Umatic and be installed in all the Veteran Affairs hospitals for as an obligatory uh, viewing for all the new employees from surgeons down to nurses and cleaners, uh, all hospital staff had to see this film. And uh, so I thought, okay, good. And two writers had uh, had a crack at the uh, scenario and Brooks Bank being one, Chris McGill being the other. They both did a great job. I I looked at, it was a good factual structure that made made all the points that could come up in a lecture that would follow the screening. And uh, so I took all this on board and built in, you know, the horror elements because I thought that's what they needed. You want you want to scare people shitless, uh, so and or certainly smokeless. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, so I, I kind of thought, well, let's make an industrial safety horror movie, and that's what I did. It's very you know, so effective. So I things like, yeah. I had things like a, you know, a, a charred corpse is discovered. Of course, you know, being the, you know, wicked filmmakers that we were, we christened the corpse uh, prop that smokes beautifully in the shot with the name of a local actor, Chard Haywood, <laughs> who was a number 96 
star, I believe, for a while. Poor child. Uh, anyway, he, he <laughs> uh, good man. But uh, he, he, we, we, he became the name of our prop, uh, smoldering corpse. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where if you have to have a sense of humor while you make a film. They take the work seriously. But it, the work is better if you all you know, bond together with a sense of fun. The crew worked over 18 total nights, uh, six-day weeks, 18 nights, and referred to the film as the Towering Infirmary for you know, reasons uh, that are obvious. Um, now, Grant Page getting burnt to death in the elevator. Mm -hmm. Well, mm, it fired in, in an interior location is, you know, it's a safety issue. How do you do it? So we built the elevator in a car park and oh, didn't really? put a roof on it. And then we blasted him with a flamethrower and the cameras in the right positions. We had, you know, operating doors that would close on him, things like that. And uh, then we were able to get the shots and immediately he would step out. We put him out and then we could put out the burning, you know, the burning set and wash away the ashes. Uh, wow. And so that was one way to do a, a blazing interior. But we did have fire inside one of the three well, I, 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 I set fire to three public hospitals, I, I, I say with some pride about this film. Uh, Newcastle Hospital let us put fire bars on their fire stairs. Wow. They gave, the shot gives the impression that the, the fire is blazing inside, inside through windows, you see. Uh, and the, another hospital, I think it was in Concord, they had a ward they were going to redecorate, uh, so they let me put some fire there. And in particular, and in, in uh, Concord Repatriation Hospital for Veterans, mm -hmm. I was able to, at a T-junction in the uh, upper floor, put in a false wall and a false laundry chute opening so that the nurse could walk along the wall open the sh laundry chute, and then we could blast her with a flamethrower uh, because the fire suddenly had oxygen from where it had started in the basement and spread up and naturally immediately blasted out, covering her in flames. And the wonderful stunt lady, not with us anymore, Dale Aspin and, and her, her late husband too. Dale Aspin does a great fire stunt mm. and uh, probably puts, uh, put a shiver into many a nurse that saw it uh, throughout the hospitals of the Veteran Affairs Department of, uh, of of Australia. And furthermore, suddenly all hospitals across Australia booked it. Wow. And the film, as I understand it, became the highest-selling industrial safety film or the highest-selling industrial film that Australia ever produced. Now, that statistic may have been superseded since, uh, but yeah, who knows? But the reason it has a special place in my heart is that I was told by the producer, Peter Johnson, that six months after the film became accessible to these hospitals, a, a hospital on the north coast of New South Wales recognised that their intensive care was on the fourth the top floor of their hospital. And one clear lesson from the film is that non-ambulatory patients should be as close to the ground floor as possible. Mm. So they moved intensive care to the ground floor 
and then four months later, the top floor caught fire and was gutted. Wow. So I feel, well, I made a contribution. And uh, so that's why, you know, you, you, you don't get to make many Brownie Points movies in your life. And I feel there's a film that I spent six months on and $5,000. And it's, it's one of my proudest achievements. I, yeah, every day we thought, how can we make this good? How can we make the resources that we have give this scale and dramatic impact and emotional power? Luckily, I, I had a cast of actors who you know, were paid scale mm. uh, or less than scale. And uh, Mark Edwards, who'd done some a couple of Hammer Horrors, and uh, not one I made a trailer for, though. Uh, <laughs> and Jeannie Drynan, who has won many awards in Australia, and um, yeah, Muriel's Wedding uh, being yeah. one. She gives a heartfelt performance at the end of the, uh, of the movie that uh, yeah, does bring tears to people's eyes, and she cries real tears. And uh, it's the slug in the guts that that the audience needs. They've had the horror, and now they need the consequences of the horror, the bereavement. Wow. So anyway, shaping the, shaping the message, shaping what you're selling. And so it's, it's, to a degree, it's trailer technique. I was wondering if we could talk about your creative collaboration with Grant Page, one of the great stuntmen. Well, Grant Page and I have been very good for each other's careers. I needed someone uh, to do rope slides on my very first financed film. Uh, well, I, I, I borrowed $16,000 and made The Stuntmen, which luckily won a Best Documentary Award at uh, Sydney Film Festival and basically was proof of concept that I could do the stuff I was talking about, namely making action pictures in Australia. Action pictures are the you know, the universal currency of uh, the world's movie market because they transcend all language barriers. So the stuntmen kicked me off and Grant was a supporting stuntman in that. The lead stuntman died after a heart operation some months after the film was completed and before it was shown. But luckily, he got to see it at the, um, the Sydney Film Festival. So uh, after Bob passed, I wanted to take the stuntmen and turn it into a four-part series. You know, a good idea is sometimes worth repeating. And, and I wanted Grant to be the head, the host and stunt lead stuntman to demonstrate uh, all the different tricks of the trade spread over four episodes and shoot it in different parts of the world as well as Australia. And I managed to get that financed by Grady Union along with the man from Hong Kong, Kung Fu Killers and, uh, and the world of Kung Fu. So that became Danger Freaks. Are you scared of heights? Ah! Are you frightened of fire? Ignition! Are you fond of animals? Then we have a movie for you. And when I said to Grant, I'm going to do this, I'm, let me manage your career for the first five years, and uh, I will create vehicles for you, and I'll get your name above the title of a movie in five years, because I believe you could be kind of an Australian Errol Flynn of the new Errol Flynn, 
not in a sort of romantic lead way, but as, you know, co-lead or villain who is clearly seen to be doing his own stunts. And, you know, you really pay attention when this guy does stuff, just as you do with Jason Statham mm. or, you know, with, with, you know, Tom Cruise, you know. These guys pretty much do it all. And obviously, you know, with all the safety precautions and technological advantages that we now have that we didn't have back in 1974 when we shot a man from Hong Kong, did any of the crazy stuff that we did at that time. But it all worked out. Grant and I both went to, I guess, private schools. And we both were sons of people who had an extraordinary war career uh, in the Second World War. Grant's, well, seven years older than me uh, and still going strong, yeah. cutting lantana every day uh, on his property. And his father went away to war, private, came back as a lieutenant colonel. My father, as I said, was a fighter pilot who yeah, had an interesting prisoner of war experience in a couple of camps and uh, ended up commanding air force bases in Libya and elsewhere and doing some work for MI6. So both of us, I think, grew up worshipping our fathers and revering their commitment to service and to military that matters. Mm. And so while I am in one way a, a progressive anti-war person, I have come to believe that sometimes wars are necessary. But, uh, but back to Grant, he is a, a great Australian. Uh, he represents that can-do, have-a-go, mate attitude that is in, it's inherent in the Australian character. And I experienced this when I landed in 66, where, incidentally, I was automatically an Australian citizen. I didn't find this out until many years later, but thankfully I was. So I, uh, I am both British, Australian, and American citizen these days. From Hong Kong. Listen, there's a Chinese cop in town. He's beginning to annoy me. Yeah, I think he should meet with a slight accident. Could we maybe talk about Man from Hong Kong for a while? Because I think it is one of the great action movies. And it feels like it's that quintessential Hong Kong co-production. And I also feel like you're one of the only non-Hong Kong filmmakers to really understand and get the excitement of the vibe of that martial arts era of filmmaking. Mm. Can you tell me about your reverence for it and kind of how the project even begins in that way? Is it true that you went to Hong Kong with the intent of working with Bruce Lee, but it was like right after he had passed away? Well, I had gone to Hong Kong to make, well, I was going to make a documentary about Bruce Lee with the cooperation of Golden Harvest, his studio. He had uh, suspended the game of death, which he had been working on so that he could make Enter the Dragon mm -hmm. for Warner Brothers, who brought in Robert Klaus, a uh, really good director. Darker Than Amber is an excellent example mm. of his early work. And uh, he eventually took a, a Disney telemovie 
the London connection that I was offered but couldn't make the dates in time. Um, hey, where would my career have gone then if mm -hmm. I'd done that? Anyway, but that was later. He divided his time between movies and television, as, as, as we all do. Anyway, uh, I wanted to make a documentary about Bruce Lee and Asian cinema, which I had already fallen in love with, watching Shaw Brothers movies in Chinatown uh, in uncensored screenings of things like Five Fingers of Death. Mm. Uh, and also, you know, I'd, I'd seen a, a lot of Japanese samurai movies, so I, I, I'd loved Asian cinema already. But Grady Union Theatres and I were forming a, a partnership, in, a production partnership at the time, and my first cab off the rank for them was this documentary, and they gave me $8,000 to make it. And uh, my plan was to fly to, to Hong Kong as arranged with Golden Harvest. And they would get Bruce Lee for an interview sometime in the week I could spend in Hong Kong. At the same time, I would have my six-page treatment for what turned out to be the man from Hong Kong in my back pocket. And I would hopefully bond with Bruce and slip it to him. Mm -hmm. So I got on the plane with this in mind. And... Uh, uh, as I the plane touched down for refueling in Jakarta Airport, I got out in the transit lounge, big newspaper headlines, Bruce Lee dies. Mm. So that was a tragedy, tragedy for the world, tragedy for world cinema. Just think if he had lived to be Clint Eastwood's age and had gone on making films as he always would have done, yeah. what might he have contributed to world cinema? Anyway, he landed in Hong Kong contacted Golden Harvest, they were shattered. Of course. But I knew I had to make something. So I made a tribute to him, and I managed to buy footage of the funeral from offcuts of a news Hong Kong television cameraman and uh, get extracts from his films cleared by Golden Harvest to use and flew back and uh, realized, you know, that this is going to be, you know, I, I still want to do something about a Chinese Dirty Harry who comes to Australia and wrecks the place, but it's going to have to wait. So next step was to mount another production to go to Hong Kong mm. <laughs> and connect with Golden Harvest. Wow. Um, and so I said, how about I come back and bring Grant Page with me, the great Australian stuntman, and he will look for who is the next Bruce Lee and yeah. we'll make another TV documentary. And they said, okay, you got the money, we got the time. Go Greater Union ponied up $13,000. I ended up selling it for $19,000 locally. So it's, it's important to make a profit. But in the course of, therefore, working with Golden Harvest on that and shooting you know, behind the scenes of George Lazenby shooting Stoner with Angela Mao Ying, I was able to then pitch the man from Hong Kong to them they saw it as a perfect vehicle for George Lazenby to be the villain. In other words, you know, although the Chinese hero was a James Bond of China, as mm -hmm. well as being a Bruce Lee uh, kind of hero, the villain was in fact a former James Bond. Yeah. And then you know, I, I could give it a Bondish veneer visually, try and shift it a little bit from just being a Kung Fu movie into a more Western acceptable genre format, and uh, hence what I came up with. Anyway, they, they liked the screenplay, and uh, 
it suited them and they thought, you know, they were looking to expand into co-production with lots of other people. And we just happened to luck out at the right time, thanks to a great Australian distribution executive, John Fraser, Mm. sadly no longer with us. But boy, did he have some stories to tell. Man from Hong Kong, therefore, had its genesis from that interesting confluence of events. I was wondering if we could talk about genre a bit more broadly for a moment as well, because kind of the way that I've evolved my thinking about genre over the years is that genre is kind of a cinematic language that audiences are deeply fluent in without even really knowing they're fluent in it, really unconsciously. And I think your films really speak to that idea as a way to communicate to audience in tropes either they're familiar with or subverting those tropes in a way to kind of like, especially in your films, I think, communicate with them almost on a political or social commentary level. Do you have any thoughts on that idea? Yes, uh, I, I I am a bit political. <laughs> um, I mean, Man from Hong Kong in 1974, not a script that you would normally get greenlit today, I can tell you, mm. um, because, uh, well, what I wanted to do was upend the stereotype mm. in 1974 of the classic brawny, white, generally American hero who goes to Asia and you know, tries to, to save them from some criminal enterprise beds a, a number of you know, beautiful girls, beats up people who seem to be much more lithe and flexible and physically fit than himself, and the world is happy. And I thought, well, what if we just reverse that slightly and send a Chinese Dirty Harry to Sydney and have him you know, exceed his brief and decide to go after the local Mr. Big and generally wreck the place? And he is smarter than the Australian cops, And uh, this was a way of doing sort of James Bond, Charles Mm. Bronson, the classic think with his fists hero, but make him Asian in a a country in which certain characters utter racial stereotypes. And uh, so Man from Hong Kong does have that little undercurrent of trying to break a little bit of new ground. Mm. Uh, I think part of the R rating it got was, I mean, uh, the there was certainly, when Dead End Drive-In was viewed by the, the censors in Australia, they wanted to give it an R rating because they thought it was socially subversive and not good for the under-18s to see it without, uh, to be allowed to see it in the cinema. And we appealed and we got an M rating. But the social comment that you see in Dead End Drive-In, which is now being appreciated you know, so many years later, and uh, is as relevant uh, as it ever was. To me, that was you know, integral to the piece and one of the reasons I wanted to make Dead End Drive-In uh, because of its socio-political message. But the best way to get a message across, well, I think one of the great Hollywood moguls said, you want to send a message, you know, call Western Union. Well, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> what the Australian <laughs> equivalent would have been. Um, <laughs> but when, when I want to send a message, I wrap it up in uh, nice exploitation wrapping paper. And when we think about your films, films that have captured like the imaginations of young people, I think, are uh, BMX Bandits and Frog Dreaming. BMX Bandits. They're wild in the streets in a high-flying ride to adventure. 
It's thrills and spills, fast and furious fun. It's a real blast. Could you talk about making genre films for young people and working with young performers? Well, yes. You see, I have always been a young person. I'm now 77 years young, and I am still really kind of 22. Maybe I've matured a little bit. but uh, it, So it's easy to find my inner child. It pops out all the time. When I did BMX Bandits, I tried to convey my sense of fun to the young actors and crack jokes. And yeah, maybe some of my jokes yeah, weren't as funny as I thought they were. I don't know. I just spoke to them honestly and always explained what I was doing and why I was doing it and why the scene was going to be great because we're going to have a shot of this, we're going to have a shot of that, etc., etc. So I tried to infect everyone on a film crew and cast and crew with my enthusiasm for the medium and the scene we're doing today, but without distracting the actors from their characters or what they should be focused upon in that regard. I immediately knew at the audition that Nicole Kidman was a natural. She just had a, a natural way of making clunky dialogue less clunky. Mm. Uh, and when she had some good dialogue, she had great timing. And she just knew where to put the emphasis, uh, which part of the sentence, uh, etc. And uh, just was very natural and unpretentious, but also I could tell quite ambitious. And I thought, hmm, this is going to be an interesting combination. And as the film progressed from really from day one, when uh, the script had really written her as the tag-along girl, I thought, no, I'm going to, I know she's, three inches taller than the boys, as the <laughs> producers have pointed out to me, but she's taller than the guys. Who cares? Look at her. She's a shock of frizzy red hair and just, yeah, beautiful. So the audience is going to love her. So I, I just stuck her in the foreground instead of <laughs> and had them come alongside her. And that helped the height thing too. Uh, anyway, so it, it came together very well and we all had a good time. I was wondering if we could talk about one of your most beloved cult films, Turkey Shoot. The world is ruled by a strict regime. They're going to make obedient little citizens out of us. Who are? Society. Because it's a very ambitious film, but its budget gets cut in half almost immediately before shooting. Can you talk about the original vision of that film and then the kind of creative solutions to problems that stem from that massive budget cut? Well, to be... Factual, it wasn't cut in half, but below the line budget, which is what you actually make the film with, had a huge chunk taken out of its budget. And that's what caused the problems for me in the film. Originally, it was to be a 44-day shoot. It was going to be 3.4 million. My concept was the Cambon Blood Island meets the Naked Prey, the most dangerous game, the run of the arrow, or... Well, these days, you know, recently, yeah. Hunger Games. Um, yeah. Hunger Games. Yeah, and look, there, there are many derivatives. So Camp on Blood Island, uh, the most dangerous game, and we should have a nice battle at the end. So that was the plan, and 44-day shoot, whoa, could do that. And they were going to bring in the visual, the, the pyrotechnics effects guy who won shared an Academy Award on Star Wars, John Steers, he's going to do the pops and bangs, and we're going to shoot in North Queensland, and the great Panavision, spectacular, 
I love jungle. But then, yeah, the money started shrinking slightly, but all the writers, producers, directors, and lead actors had been contracted at the larger figure, but below the line suddenly had to shrink. And that's where it really hurt us to lose 450 plus thousand dollars. So the 44 days came down to 36 and eventually came down to 30. And when they found I'd actually shot the script, that the reduced script in 28 days, and I was halfway through the 28th day thinking I would have 29 and 30 to stitch and patch the 15 pages of the opening that had been cut out because we couldn't afford 1984 meets the camp on Blood Island. It had to start with the camp on Blood Island and you couldn't have the scenes in which the prisoners got caught, just have them arrive at the camp. Uh, and the helicopter chase, which was to be piloted by Graham Kennedy, he wanted too much money. Wow. So I was told to cut that out, replace him with another hunter. So now a hunter had to hunt two people. And how do we justify that? So all of this was going on in the last mad scramble of pre-production as to how I could modify the 94-page script uh, <laughs> and lose 15, uh, lose nearly 20 pages out of it and then still make a 90-minute movie. So that does sort of give you something to, uh, to think about. So I decided that I think, you know, I was going to let my sense of humor run a little freer than I had originally intended. It's going to be Escape from New York, you know, the jungle aspect of it. And, uh, but, yeah, it was going to ha have that level. It would have the, that carpenter bite to mm. it. But that I, you know, I went a bit beyond that and went into, uh, you know, maybe some more overt nods and winks at satire. And also I had to deal with the fact that I I didn't have the wonderful makeup for Alf. Yeah. It was going to be this part cyborg, part sort of genetic experiment. And he would have been, you know, a standout aspect of the film if we could have pulled it off, but we couldn't. So we had to pull off something. So it was a man with as much chest and much prosthetic hair as we could afford and uh, prosthetic eyes and a good wrestler. So he still gets talked about. He, Truly. People remember him, but not, not the way... <laughs> I had originally intended. He, he is laughed at and criticized, but yet some people think, well, that was really weird. That was interesting. That was different. Wow. So there you go. So sometimes your mistakes can actually, um, with the advantage of the passage of time, perhaps uh, work in your favor. But uh, Turkey shoot, yeah. So it, it has got politics and it is. it was intended to, to be an over-the-top vision of what a authoritarian capitalist society of the future would do to its dissidents, to its protesters, its rebels of any kind. The Soviet Union put them in behavior modification camps or, or wrapped them in wet sheets tightly in psychiatric centers because they were mentally ill for having these dissident thoughts. So yeah, I was trying to sort of show a bit of Soviet totalitarianism applied to a capitalist-driven you know, society where the bureaucrats and the government are 
well, they're impunable. No law applies to them. And, you know, Most Dangerous Game uh, and the screenplay of which Turkey Shoot was originally based, basically drawing from the Deep South where convicts, some of them black, some of them white, were considered to be yes, society's refuse and were hunted for sport. And the fact this has cropped up in so many books and so many movies means that it has some uh, basis in fact. So uh, you dehumanize people enough, you can feel justified in treating them as vermin. You know? so, and now we have authoritarian politicians who would love to put dissidents away somewhere and maybe shock them back into conformity. Wow. Uh, so all of that, that's kind of uh, angry thinking mm. at the beginning of the Reagan years, you know, in 1982, and the Thatcher years, hence we named the, or what I did, the commandant uh, of the camp, Charles Thatcher, for Maggie. And uh, so the strongest aspect of the political message is really in Michael Craig's wonderful speech to the prison camp inmates early in the film. Back to my original problem, well, what are, I can't afford 1984. How do I situate the audience, position them for what's about to happen so that they're ready to suspend disbelief? And I accomplished that later in Dead End Drive-In with those titles I talked about before. But uh, with this one, Tony Ganane, the producer, said, well, you'll come up with something. And I thought, right. What if I use stock footage that I buy from Viz News and other sources and put together an opening title montage in split screens and keep it lively and zippy? And that, that's, that's an opening title sequence I personally designed, mm. you know, shot for shot, wipe for wipe. Great graphic people, optical and graphic, Amanda Newton, uh, Peter Newton did it for me. And we got, I found great stuff from Viz News. We put that, that opening and it's a dynamic opening and it completely sells the world that our heroes find themselves in. Mm. So once I realized I was, that was going to work, I did not uh, lament the loss of my 1984 ideas, <laughs> uh, which frankly would have been harder to pull off in downtown Cairns than maybe somewhere else. Uh, yeah. I mean, I get a bit of, I mean, my very hastily filmed in an afternoon flashbacks to the, how they were captured. One of them is in the prop shed and the other is in the local jewelry shop. But, you know, when you've got a thing on your feet, uh, you make the best decision you can. Uh, yeah, we get by. Yeah, um, because we arrive at the prison camp and nasty things start happening straight away, uh, yeah. and that's what the audience has come to see. Absolutely. But, uh, anyway, I, and and I want to hold out a special note of praise to two people. Well, so many people in Turkey shoot, but firstly, Oriana Panozo, who was a, a soap opera star back in uh, Sons and Daughters, and uh, she played the luckless girl who has, is beaten to death on the parade ground by the wonderfully monstrous Roger Ward, who is yeah, a favorite actor of, of mine. I've yeah. done six movies with him. Absolutely. Uh, he's just a lovable giant, so funny, so clever, just a wonderful presence on the screen. He, he really knows how to exude gleeful evil <laughs> absolutely uh, and, and enjoy uh, it yeah, uh, and enjoy it you know and, and, and gus mercurio 
oh god he i said gus how bad can you be and he said watch me uh, and he threw in some extra lines that uh, you know like i've come to taste your honey uh, uh, and probably not a line that olivia hussey was expecting poor girl but a lovely lady by the way she's um, great in the film too new very yeah she's very good in the film i mean she's an innocent she's a, a deer caught in the headlights of her situation and she plays it very well anyway so but it was a film that was reviled by the critics reviled by philip adams reviled by david stratton who was generally a, fa a fan of mine a litany of horrors uh, he called it, and indeed, it's it exactly what it is. He nailed it. It might be time for us to start wrapping up, but I'd love to just pay you a compliment as well about Dead End Driving and why I think it really resonates now, when why I think it's like aged rather powerfully and remarkably. Because there's a scene here in the driving cinema where it transforms into a concentration camp for the unwanted youth, the dead-end youth of Australia, mm -hmm. and then even further into being a concentration camp for refugees and asylum seekers. And in the far-off background, you can see the cheap little houses of suburban Australia, like the, the kind of the incline of suburban Australia kind of creeping in. And I remember hearing you say that you'd wish you'd obscured that, to have that more of that remote prison feel. But I think watching it today in a modern Australia where there are literally inhumane offshore detention centres holding refugees, holding asylum seekers inhumanely, that the most part of regular Australia choose to ignore, but it's right on suburban Australia's doorstep and yet nothing is done. And I think now that aspect of the film it's only like little touches, but it feels really prescient, really emotional. And I think its social commentary has evolved to be something even more powerful. Well, I, I'm so pleased and gratified and, and moved to hear you say that. I, I felt the film had something to say, and I, I'm glad that it is hitting the mark now in relation to those buildings. I'm so grateful to have gotten to spend such great quality time talking to Brian Trenchard-Smith and celebrating his cinema. His films mean a great deal to me and hopefully have inspired you to start your adventure through his wild works. I want to leave you with this quote from Brian that I think really sums up the guy. It's from an article he wrote for TalkHouse.com about jumping on board a pro-George W. Bush propaganda film, of all things. The article is called How I Swayed the 2004 Presidential Election with my pro-Bush 9-11 movie, even though I'm a lefty. Brian says, Despite my lifelong leftist voting record, I'm not ashamed of taking on DC 9-11. I've served clients as diverse as Pentecostal Christians and gay VOD channels. People other than hate groups are entitled to have their stories told. I'm a professional filmmaker. It's what I do. There's nobody quite like Brian Trenchard-Smith. A huge thank you to Umbrella Entertainment for making this podcast with me, and I'm extending that thank you for them having basically a huge list of Brian Trenchard-Smith films on Broly right now for you to stream. Here's that list. Danger Freaks, Turkey Shoot, Frog Dreaming, The Man from Hong Kong, Stunt Rocks, BMX Bandits, Death Cheaters, Day of the Panther, and its sequel, Strike of the Panther. And if you want to fully immerse yourself into Ozploitation, you have to watch Not Quite Hollywood, one of the best documentaries about film that there is. Next time on Sunburnt Screens, we're going to be delving into personal cinema, queer cinema. 
We're going to be talking to Anna Kokinos, who made Head On, one of my very favorite films. And we'll be joined once again by Goran Seleski on his second film, of an age that opened the Melbourne International Film Festival in 2022. Oh, and by the way, if you want to watch Head On before next week's episode, it is on Broly. And you might see just why I was so nervous to interview one of my heroes, Anna Kokinos. I don't know why you were nervous. Oh, you know, it was too exciting. It was too exciting. I barely slept last <laughs> night, knowing I was going to get to meet and talk to you today. Well, you, you're a terrific interviewer, very very intelligent questions and very enjoyable interview. So you've wow. done very well. Oh, my God. I'm going to tell my mom. I was like, I hope she Please thinks I'm smart. Mother. I hope she thinks I'm intelligent. I'm like, wow, uh, well, uh, I've look, got it in writing now. You've got it in writing. And if she wants to see me say it, I'm telling her right now. She wants to hear me say it. <laughs> He's very, very smart, intelligent, lovely to talk to. Good, clearly a very good person. Okay, wow, that's going to be my ringtone. I'm going to take that out, just put that in every time I get a text message, that little affirmation popping through. This has been Sunburnt Screens, and I've been Alexi Toliopoulos. Until next time, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs> <laughs>